1: How's it going, everybody? Welcome back to the Acrosophy podcast, and I am pleased to introduce Dr. Eric Corman, founder of AIM-7. Eric has spent over 15 years in collegiate and pro athletics as a sports scientist and director of high performance. Eric, welcome to the show. Fired up to have you on.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me here. I'm excited to be here today.
1: Fired up to have you on. Um, Tell us, first of all, what is... What is high performance? What does it mean? And, and, and if you don't mind, share with us how you sort of got uh, going in this direction in your career.
0: Yeah, I think the story will kind of help you understand. So um, I, uh, I played college football, Texas A&M, long time ago now. <laughs> I'm so old that I was watching a game this past weekend, and the running back, his dad and I played together. So that's, oh. that's when you know, like, you're getting there. But anyways... Um, there was this physiology lab attached to our weight room and I was a pre-med major and they were doing all this cool stuff. And I was like, what, you know, what is this? And I asked my strength coach, he's like, Hey, there's a science to training athletes. And as a walk on uh, at a really good school at the time, there was a difference between me and everybody else. Right. Like you could see the difference. Like this guy ended up being a top 10 pick in the draft. There's a reason why he's on scholarship and I'm not. And so I just kind of committed myself to doing whatever it took to become the best I could be. And that led me down this exploration of performance. And so after I graduated, I went to the university of Arkansas and got a master's degree in physiology. But while I was there, I was very fortunate in 2004 after the uh, Athens games, I was introduced to Veronica Campbell, Brown, Tyson, Gay, Wallace, some of the best sprinters in America. And, um, I got to travel the world with Veronica for like 14 years. And she's an eight-time Olympic medalist, two-time Olympic. Um, two, she's won the 200 meters twice. And she's one of two women to ever do that. And so I got to travel around the world and start seeing how everybody else was training athletes. And I noticed that things were a little bit different overseas. And the reason for that is they, they were investing a lot of resources from their governments in training these athletes. And I started investigating, you know, why, why are we doing this in the U.S.? You know, we have the USOC, but they're always having to raise money. Our government doesn't fund them. And it's because in the U.S. we have a problem and we have, but the problem is we have too many good athletes and it's not a precious commodity where overseas, if you don't have, let's just say you're in Saudi Arabia, right? And you got all this oil sitting under your feet. Are you actively looking for ways to get energy, like natural sources of energy. No, you're just going to drill right below your feet. So in the U S we've never had the pressure of trying to develop these athletes at a really high level. And so fast forward a little bit. Uh, I worked, I went on to become a strength conditioning coach and I've worked all over the country. And in 2010, I was hired by Jimbo Fisher as the head football coach at Florida state at the time as the speed coordinator. Cause I'd done all this work in track. And uh, after my first year, he's like, I got promoted. Uh, He made me the director of football operations, which is bizarre. And um, I said, Hey, listen, I'll do the job if you let me be, if you name me the director of sports science. He's like, You can call yourself whatever you want. I don't care. And that was a job that didn't exist yet in the US. So during our vacation, my wife and I went for a month to Australia and I was invited by an Australian rules football team to go do an information exchange. And I, for the first time I was exposed to a high performance unit. Okay. And uh, Dr. Uh, John Quinn is his name. He was the head track and field coach for the Aussie Olympic team in 2000. He was one of the first high performance directors in Australian rules football at one of the premier clubs called Essendon. And um, I got to go to the Australian Institute of sport and under one roof. You had, The coaches, you had physiologists, you had biomechanists, you had psychologists, and everybody was working together to do whatever it took to elevate the athlete. They were doing research, the athletes live there. And so this model for high performance came from failure. Back in the 70s, Australia was just terrible. I mean, I think they, in the 78 games, I think it was somewhere around there, they won like two medals and they were ranked like in the bottom 50 in the world. And they came back and were like, we got to change something. And so they decided we're going to create an institute of sport. And uh, they invested a ton of resources. And by the 2000 Olympic games, they were top three in the world. Wow. Okay. And so what happened was, I mean, they, the population didn't just change overnight. They have a very small population and a big landmass. The UK did the same thing for the 08 games in London. They invested all this money. Look what happened to Japan this year, right? So what high performance is, is in my model, it's the physical development, the psychological development, which you can kind of parse out to two sides, and the technical and tactical. So the physical development. What are the requirements of your sport? And this this is a model that can be laid over any sport there is. The US Olympics has now adopted this model here. Okay, the USOC. So you look at the biodynamic or the movement requirements of the game and the bioenergetic, the energy systems used the aerobic system, the anaerobic lactic system, the alactic systems, and which which one is used more predominantly in which situations. Um, and then you can kind of create a model for what are the requirements of the game. And then you can train the athletes to that model. And then there's the technical requirements. So like when I learned lacrosse, I was working at William and Mary as the high performance director there. I sat down with the lacrosse coach and she really wanted to put this into play. She's like, okay, I want to put this high performance model. Like, so teach me the, some fundamentals of lacrosse. So you know, I start learning about like how to handle a stick and the different movements. And then she's like, you know, when the draw rule the world, like, what does that mean? And so she starts t- explaining how the draw works. And then we're like, okay, like then physically, how can we cr- like develop an athlete to help win those? And then she talks about, I think it's eight meter sprints. Is that right? The internal ring, or is it shorter than that?
1: It's an eight meter uh, free position shot.
0: Right. So you can sprint towards the goal and yeah. 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 So if you can accelerate off that line faster than your opponent, you're going to have an advantage. So She was showing me this. So there was all these little things. There's technical parts, and then there's tactical, how you move the ball on the field, like all the things that y'all are excellent at. And then there's the psychological. The problem is and has been for many, many years is these things have been separated in different domains. Yep. So you have your strength coach over here who does his or her thing, which may not be aligned with the demands of lacrosse. You have the technical, tactical requirements, which the coaches are excellent at, but that they may not be introducing those skills in an environment that develops the energy systems most appropriate for the game. So there what could be mean? a dis- So, for instance, like, um, I'll just take a goalie, for instance. Okay. Like, what's the biggest area of space that the goalie could operate in typically?
1: the biggest would typically be, you know, within 20 or 30 yards, occasionally, you know, 50 yards, you know, maybe a full field, but rarely. And then what
0: are the bursts of activity they're usually involved in? I mean, like really high outputs for short durations of time. And then the ball could be down the field doing whatever. And then it comes to them. Okay. So the requirements of a goalie are different in a lot of ways. Now they have to, catch the ball. They have to be able to throw a ball. They have to be able to defend. You know what I'm saying? But the movement, they have to be incredibly explosive. They have to have great hand-eye coordination. There's things that you've got to develop with them. If all of the drills that you do with a goalie are very lactic in nature, meaning like two to five minutes of very high intensity output, kind of like, you know, you run a 400 or 800 meter and you want to puke, If all your drills are in that type of environment, are you preparing the goalie to do what they should be doing in game demands? Right. No, no. So as, as Tony Holler would say, you're detraining them. You are detraining them. You're actually taking away what makes them who they are. Now this can go for, please excuse me. It's been a little while since I've worked lacrosse, but um, people that are kind of in the midfield are going to have to run a much longer distance but you got to look at those velocities. The, the aerobic requirements of the game are very high, but also the speed requirements of the game are very high. Yeah, And so they actually don't spend a tremendous amount of time in these lactic zones. Um, they shouldn't actually if they're well-trained. And we could talk about that later. But for each sport, you need to um, examine what is actually happening in the game The physical training should develop those qualities and then the skills should be trained in the environment that improves the energy systems or their conditioning. So you should have periods where it's very explosive high output throws with lots of rest because if you want to get a lot of velocity, the only way that you train power is maximal outputs with significant rest then you should have some tempo type based activities that are very aerobic in nature where you're moving the ball. There's consistent movement. Does that make sense? And now you're, now you're creating, um, I don't want to use too many deep scientific words, but the morphological quality, the muscle tissues now can sustain these types of outputs where in any sport, forget lacrosse. I've seen this. These are principles that apply all over the place. Football is the worst. They try to just they do these stupid offseason 6 a.m. county fair circuits for like an hour where they're just draining these guys for like ever and ever and ever where the game of football is what you snap the ball. You go hard for five seconds. There's like anywhere between 20 to 55 seconds rest. It's a very alactic power game. So you can see how this model like I started working lacrosse and I was like, look, I'm not an expert in lacrosse. Let's talk about your game. Teach me about the technical. Teach me about the tactical. Let's watch the game film. And then we looked at the literature. What does the literature say about the energy system requirements? All right. Now, how do we construct practice in a way that actually yields the results that we want to get? And I believe, let me look this up really quick. After our first year of implementing this, um, there was actually a paper I I was just telling you about off air that you can... You can get your folks that we just published in a machine learning journal. Here it is. Um, After the first year of implementing this with the team, we had a 50% increase in wins, an 83% reduction in in in-season injuries, 100% reduction of soft tissue catastrophic injuries. Our girls were available for selection for 416 of the 420 possible opportunities to play, and 98% reduction in insurance claims. So if you look at it from all the the factors, they won more, they were healthy, they were available, and it cost the school less money and insurance. All because we applied, it was the same team, we applied a new model. But the coaching, you know, the tactical, tactical components of the game didn't change. It was just how we developed all these things in unison. And everybody was on the same page. And that's what high performance is. I'm sorry that was long-winded, but I wanted to give you a very clear understanding
1: i love it okay so um now that you've sort of explained what high performance is um you know where where would you say it's going
0: yeah i think um i think you know if you look at international sport usually kind of leads the way so like when the when your uh national teams are doing things a certain way it kind of trickles down I'm seeing this becoming more and more prevalent all over the place. You know, it started it really started back in the Cold War. So you, you remember like when like the Olympics was basically political warfare. Yeah. They were investing a lot of money in that. When that ended, you know, you started seeing the rise of countries like Australia. So the US was like, huh, let's take a look at this. The USOC adopted this model. Okay, It's really benefited us a lot. Now you're seeing it applied in Major League Soccer in the U.S. Um, Major League Baseball teams now high-performance high directors. The Cubs, when Theo Epstein was there, put in um, put in this model, essentially. Um, NFL teams now were adopting this. The New York Jets just got somebody. The 49ers have folks. Um, it exists. I mean, you you look at the big four. NBA, you're going to start. And then now there's college universities that are hiring this directors of high performance to kind of start bringing all these departments together. To me, the true high performance director should be the sport coach. Yep. Because they're the curator of the culture. They're the ones that are the PhDs in their sport. The missing link is, and this is not a knock on coaches. This is just is what it is. There's not a true, like, there's not a lot of really good coaching curriculums. You can go to college and get a four-year degree in all the things that you need to know to walk out and be able to, like, I can diagnose the sports structure. I understand periodization. I understand energy systems. You see what I'm saying? And so a lot of coaches now are starting to learn on the fly. Yeah. And when they learn this, they, like, they have a significant advantage. Over their opponents, and so I see my goal and my desire is that these coaches will end up learning these systems and be able to put them into place themselves.
1: And it's hard because there is so much. uh, There's a prevalence of this is how we've always done it, and we're going to run you. We're going to get you in shape. uh, We're going to get you up early in the morning and make you tough, and we're going to grind you out and. And this is how I really got the, the intro to the way I end up fi- finding you was seeing tweets from Mike Boyle, getting an introduction from him. And then and then hearing about Tony Holler and then Tony introducing uh, us together. And, and, and I kind of look at myself in the same vein of I want to be a high performance <laughs> coach and be able to bring all these things together for people because it makes so much sense. Um, it's hard to be an expert in all of them. So you really need to figure out a way to get these best practices.
0: Yeah. And um, I'll tell you what though, I've worked with coaches in all different sports and you give them a few basic texts that they can read. And then you give them a little bit, like I I found that in 12 months they can learn the fundamentals and then they know how to apply it better than anybody else because they know the sport so well. They can like, Oh, okay. This is how we do practice structure, you know, but like, you're right. I mean, the, the knock, the, 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 fallacy is this is soft. Yes. The exactly. truth is you'll be able to do more training than you've ever done before. If you apply some discipline. So there's a couple of things. One is when you've experienced success, I'll get, okay. I was at a, you're going to laugh at this one. I was working for this. I'll just tell you Jimbo Fisher in 2010 and he said, Eric, I want you to go into this closet. And he gave me a key. And this is before our first off season, you know, our first spring training. And he goes, go in there and get me the, the binder that says 2003. And it's LSU's like every single practice script from 2003, when they won a national championship under Nick Saban. And we pull it out, he, like licks his finger, flips over the first page. He goes, this is the first day of practice. And I'm sitting there. I'm just like, you serious? Like, Um, That was seven years ago, different athletes, different place, all these different things. And we're going to think that you can just copy the model. The problem that people don't realize is Nick Saban has iterated like 30 different versions from them. When you copy the model, you copy the errors. Right. And the people that are the leaders in their field are usually... Um, adapting very fast and changing with the time. So like Nick Saban now has totally canned all the old school strength conditioning has hired a sports scientist and all this kind of stuff. And they had a dramatic, like 50% reduction in injuries last year. They're faster than they've ever been. They got rid of all the old school training. And this is like Nick Saban. You think about whoever that is in your sport. And there are things that you can glean from those folks Doesn't mean though that like, you know, when Elon Musk decided I'm going to privatize space, people are like, You're stupid. NASA's never going to use you. Yeah. Now who's laughing? You know, it's just like science is science. The principles are the principles. If you can learn them, you can apply them and you can give yourself a significant advantage over your opponents.
1: All right. So what drives high-performing teams and athletes?
0: Yes, I think there's a couple things. I think you have to have a coach that's curious and has some courage. I think that's uh, the most important thing Uh, because unless that coach is willing to lead, especially if this is something they haven't done before, uh, it's going to take some courage and some confidence to learn and apply. Okay. So there's gotta be some curiosity there. Maybe they're reaching out to coaches in other sports. Okay. The second thing is, is, and really in every great team is adaptation. Okay, so the team that can adapt the fastest physically, psychologically, can train more with less cost. Because I think you and I would agree, I think we were talking about this the other day, that especially like in the early days of an athlete, like at the youth stage, um, the more high quality reps that that athlete can get, in a good they're going to uh, acquire skill faster. Yeah the key is is can you adapt so like um just because you train doesn't mean you get better that's a really hard one for people to that, swallow that
1: is that really is
0: and so, so why is this yeah go ahead
1: dive into that a little bit
0: yeah so um there's this whole science of training and adaptation and so i don't know if you've ever you really have to understand what stress is fundamentally cuz The brain and the body do not differentiate psychological or physiological stress. It's just this one thing. It's this general global thing. And so pardon me. I don't know if you've ever heard of uh, Hans Selye, but he was a Hungarian endocrinologist and he came up with something called the general adaptation syndrome. And basically what it is is it's like this general idea of how your body uh, adapts to stress. So Let's say, um, let's just take a weightlifting exercise or session because that's just really easy. Or practice, two-hour practice. Before you go to practice, you're feeling great. Everything's good. You go to practice. Now you've had to mobilize all these different energy resources. Uh, You've drained muscle glycogen. You've done some tissue damage. All this other kind of stuff. You've engaged psychologically. And so your body kind of takes this dip. There's like this alarm reaction. Now it's got to mobilize all these resources to help you adapt. So there's this compensation. And then there's this thing called super compensation, where if you apply, if the athlete gets to rest enough, they compensate to a higher level than they were before. And now baseline is moved up a notch. Does that make sense? So your homeostasis has gone up a little bit. The reality is it doesn't always work like that. Okay. And this is where that feel of that coach or some technology comes into play, but why, like what's going on here? Okay. So there's a stress or applied to the situation, psychological stress in this case, physical stress onto the body, um, metabolic stress. Um, This can also apply to your life. There's different stressors, work stress, financial stress, exercise stress. So I want, you know, coaches to think about this like this impacts you the same as it does your athletes because I think it's really important for us to develop high performance athletes but also develop high performance coaches. Totally. Because you're the ones that are making critical decisions. So, let's start with um kind of like how does your body respond? So there's this like balance of scales that's always going on here. And when you add this load onto the body in the form of stress, um, there's something called the autonomic nervous system, okay that's, that's always in play. And there's these kind of two major states. There's this parasympathetic system and this sympathetic system. The sympathetic system is what you may think of as fight or flight. okay? It's like when you go out to practice and you get going, there's certain chemicals and hormones that are released in the bloodstream that uh, increase your blood pressure that move blood away from certain parts of your body, like your gut into your legs and working limbs. It brings you into a hyper state of focus and awareness. And it's a state of high alertness. Okay. So on the, and then the other side of this is parasympathetic, which is this rest and digest state. Okay. It's where your body can recover and repair. When you go out and train, your body shifts into sympathetic because it has to. And what you want is, is you want that parasympathetic system to come back online when you're done so that your body can then recover, can start mobilizing resources and proteins to heal things. What happens is, is though we can get stuck over in this sympathetic state. That is not good. So I want to zoom back a little bit from athletes because this was probably going to be helpful for the coaches out there is that this as a coach. You know, if you look at extreme sympathetic state, that's like paranoia. Okay. Or like, let's say you were like a hyper state of awareness. It's really uncomfortable. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And then on the other side is like coma (laughs) or like deep, deep sleep. The state that you want to operate in every day is alert calmness. Think about that. You're calm, but you're alert. Think about a game situation. You want to be calm, but alert. You want to be able to have full control of your faculties. You want to be able to think and access instead of being in this hyper stress state where like you're cranked out on Red Bull. and You're just screaming out of your mind. That's not a good place to be making quality decisions. So how do we kind of navigate this, um, these states of alertness and calmness? Um, What you need to do is there's a couple of things you can do in the moment to regulate, but. If you, if you can picture all the stress that you can handle as being in a bowl. So imagine like I have my hands right here, two hands are holding a bowl. Yeah. You fill that bowl to the, to the top with stress, any jostle or anything like that's going to have stress spilling over the sides. It's going to cut like, it's going to be a mess. So when you train and there's a high load of stress, it costs the body a lot. If you don't have a big bowl. Now imagine I have a bowl that I can only hold with two hands. I mean, it's enormous. And I pour in that same amount of stress. I can run with that bowl and nothing's going to spill out. The cost is less. So the goal is, is to be able to train more with less cost. That means that you're more adaptable. That's why like an 18 year old senior can do the same practice that a, like a 13-year-old, let's say you had them both do a 90-minute practice, that 18-year-old senior is going to be like, that was nothing. Why? Because they can adapt to it faster. It costs them less. You look at that 13-year-old and you're like, they're out of shape, all this kind of stuff. No, it just it's it's a major stress to them. So the things that you can manipulate very simply are the frequency of training during the week. and the the types of training that you do. So if you want to adapt, you got to give yourself rest. So having days that are very intense followed by days that are less intense gives your body this natural ability to stress itself and then to give itself rest. So now it can start mobilizing the resources it needs to adapt. And then you could come back like on Wednesday. And then over time, maybe you start with your average practice is 60 minutes in duration and you go 60 minutes on Monday, Tuesdays, like maybe just some light shooting drills, Wednesday it's 60 minutes. So maybe you accumulate 180 minutes over the week. And then the next week's basic periodization, you add 10% onto that still having days that are very intense followed by days that are less intense. So this is called a high, low model. Okay. What you're now doing is you're creating space for the body to do what it needs to do and adapt. What happens is is if you go hard, 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 you start draining what's called adaptive resources, and eventually you get burned out or injured because the body doesn't have enough gas. So in this paper that we published, we demonstrated that a high-low model allowed our athletes to train harder and perform better on game day. As a matter of fact, the higher the highs and the lower the lows, the better the game outcomes, meaning if we trained really hard followed by a day that was really easy, the girls perform better on game day. So um, so really, the key here is, is like one of the keys is, is providing yourself the ability to recover. That doesn't mean ice baths. That doesn't mean Norma Tech boots. It literally means like Time. And so how do we create the biological conditions to have a bigger bowl? And this is one of the things I know you want to talk about is sleep, right? Yeah. Sleep. Like when you're waking your athletes up at 530 in the morning to come to a practice, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul. Why is that? When we sleep, three things happen. The first is our brain literally detoxifies itself. So recently we found there's a system in the brain called the glymphatic system. And it's like the lymphatic system or the brain. And what it does is at night, it flushes out metabolic waste products, some of which are associated with Alzheimer's disease and dementia. So if you've ever had like a really bad night of sleep and you woke up and had a kind of a foggy brain, you literally have crap sitting in your brain still. The second thing is, is tissue regeneration. There are certain parts of sleep um, There's non-REM sleep and REM sleep and slow-wave sleep especially. Growth hormone is released. And growth hormone is a hormone that heals tissues. Also, later at night in sleep is when testosterone is released. If you deprive yourself of sleep duration, you're going to be depriving your body of the natural hormones that need to be released to heal the tissues. Also, what people don't realize is So my doctoral degree was in how sleep impacts the brain's ability to adapt to stress, which was really like how the body adapts to stress. Mm -hmm. When you have um, rapid eye movement sleep, do you know what that is? Like when you're dreaming, it's called REM sleep. Your body is actually in a state of complete paralysis. Like literally the brain shuts off the body and you can't move. Now there's two theories for that. One is, is it allows your tissues to completely recover. The other thing is, is, have you ever had a crazy dream before? Yes. Like, like you're jumping off a building or you're flying in outer space. Like imagine if your body was online and you're dreaming these things, like you could end up at some really gnarly things. So it may be a self-preservation mechanism, but during slow wave sleep, hormones are released like growth hormone during non REM or during REM sleep, your body's like shut down, allowing to recover. The third thing is, and I think coaches will find this fascinating. This is when memory And memory consolidation and learning takes place. Really? Yes. So there's something called neuroplasticity. Have you ever heard of this? No. It's your brain's ability to um, adapt to environmental conditions. So if you want to change the way that your brain operates, if you want to learn a skill, there's two components. The first is focus and agitation. So think about like if you want to learn something really difficult in school or you're studying for something at work, you have to like sit down and study like what you feel agitated like there's a sense of like angst. What's happening is is adrenaline is being released and um, there's a, a neuromodulator called acetylcholine that's released and literally while you're studying or while you're on the practice field learning this new skill acetylcholine marks neurons in your brain for being changed later while you sleep. So the, the marking takes place. When you sleep at night, there's something, this new research, it's actually been proven. It's called the synaptic homeostasis hypothesis. It's no longer a hypothesis. We know what happens. But those neurons that were marked when you sleep, those neurological connections strengthen and other ones are weakened, the ones that aren't used. So your brain is actually expanding and contracting when you sleep. So the ones that need to be strengthened are the ones that you're using the most. So when you learn a new skill, it's initiated through agitation and frustration. And it's um, the learning is consolidated and cemented when you sleep. So there's a, some cool things you can tease out of this for athletes. Number one is the only way you're going to get better is by pushing through that mental barrier, you know, when athlete's like, gosh, this is so hard. That's when you're learning. The second part though, is you have to sleep because if you don't, all that work kind of gets flushed down the drain. And so sleep is really, as the poet Thomas Decker said, it's the golden chain that ties our health and human bodies together. So as a coach, if you want your athletes to have a bigger bowl, If you want them to be able to adapt to more stress and to get better, you need to train them in the most appropriate way. And then you need to provide uh, room for them to sleep. So how much sleep does an athlete need? My research showed that um, we actually measured something called DC potential of the brain. It's like the battery of the brain. It's actually a millivolt potential. And it's, re- it's related to skill acquisition and how all the other systems in your body are operating. We found that seven and a half to nine hours of sleep per night. This is what division one athletes was the ideal amount of time that they need to recover and adapt. Most the, you know, as you get closer to nine, the better it was. Anything over nine is not, not great. Now, if you're an early teenager, 10 hours is okay. You know, 18 to and beyond, no more than nine, because you can actually sleep too much. So, you know, you need to create room for these athletes to get sleep, and that's on them, and it's on you. It's on them to actually shut their phones off, and to get to bed, and it's on you to create the space for them to sleep. And so, this is where education really comes into play. Do you have any questions about that? I know I've been talking a lot. It's
1: really, uh, no, it's great. I, um, I love it, and I, I just. You know, I find it so interesting, and and, and it just the whole big picture of high performance is so interesting because so many people are interested in in their kids, whether they're parents or coaches or athletes. They're interested in in being the best they can possibly be, and then what they do is they put all of their time and effort into the physical things, and which aren't even always right ones but that that's kind of all they do and they just they just focus on reps 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 more 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 and the fact is is that to really think this through and to understand it you know you need the rest you, you need the sleep you need the recovery you need the downtime um, and the whole the whole big picture package is just so fascinating to me it's, and and so smart
0: there's a phrase i'm going to use that will probably get some people a little anxious here but it's called minimal effective dose so if you have a headache and you go to the doctor and you're like, doctor's like, Hey, Jamie, all you need is like one aspirin and you'll be fine. Would you then take the entire bottle? <laughs> no, it'd kill you. That's what we do. There is, there's, we, we give our athletes the biggest dose we can possibly give them rather than the, the, the right dose. that's going to create an adaptation. Can't, what do I need to stimulate the body with to get the adaptation I desire? And so um, this is where it's really important for coaches to understand intensity, duration, the type of exercise that they're doing, how it's impacting the energy systems of the body. Once they understand this, then they can start pulling the levers and then they can start measuring how their athletes are responding. But if you don't have all that fancy technology, there's like simple heuristics or rules of thumb that you could apply. Let's say you haven't seen your athletes in all summer and now they're back on campus or they're back in training in, uh, you know, high school or whatever. Start with three good sessions a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday for an hour. And then the next week go 70 minutes, three sessions a week. And I'm just making it really simple. Increase by 10 minutes. Um, and then like, okay, now we're you know, we're we're three weeks in. Now give them an unload week. And then then we'll come back and go 90 minutes three sessions a week. And now we're gonna go 90 minutes Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then we're gonna add a 60-minute session on Saturday. We're gonna come in and just do some skill. I don't know. Having these periods of high and low, high and low, high and low, these undulations, these huge waves. And like you and I talked about before, they're actually gonna come excited to train totally they're going to feel fresh um and then you can push it more and your expectations can be higher like you can't expect world-class performance every single day when you're grinding people under the ground this isn't navy seals this isn't green berets like even those folks, like I've worked with some of those different units, they realized in their selection process is they were crushing people. Now, they have to actually go out and do really dangerous things, like jump out of planes and ruck 20 miles. That's not the requirements of lacrosse. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, right. If, if everything you do is not directed at the requirements of the game and making them masters of what they do, And giving them the confidence to execute in crucible situations and provide in applying stress in the appropriate ways by increasing speed, by reducing rest times, by adding psychological stress to situations. You're not actually creating a better lacrosse player. You're becoming a generalist. And what you want to become is a master of your sport. And so the stress has to be very specific. Um. The other thing is, I know you wanted to touch on this. We talked about mindfulness, right?
1: Yeah, I wanted to ask about that.
0: Yeah, so um, mind like there's this myth that the best athletes in the world do not feel stress. And that could be nothing farther from the truth. As a matter of fact, there was this um, uh, cyclist named Sir Chris Hoy. And um, he's the greatest cyclist in Olympic history. And I was a six-time Olympic gold medalist, most decorated cyclist of all time. And when describing what it felt like to race in his first Olympic finals, he said it felt like he was going to the gallows. Okay, just think about that. Yeah, I do jujitsu. And that's like one-on-one combat. And I can train on the mats all the time. I get into a... a a tournament situation, and you better believe that there's some very real stress. I've never seen this person; they're trying to physically harm me. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, so, if if the outcome is uncertain, and you're going to be judged on that outcome, you should expect to feel uncomfortable. Let me say that again. If the outcome is uncertain and you are judged on that outcome, there's think about all the different situations in your life where that's been the case, you're going to feel uncomfortable. So the way you feel though, does not determine how you perform. And that is because like mindfulness, what mindfulness is it's training your attention. Cause as my friend, Dr. Peter Haberl says, he's a senior sports psychologist for the USOC Attention is the currency of performance. So when you train mindfulness, you're training to move your attention to where you want it, when you want it there. And uh, it doesn't have to be spiritual. It doesn't have to be. It's literally like when I went to the USOC and I'm like, Peter, show me your training room. It's like this. It's literally just a room. And there's nothing in there like a mirror, I think. And... um. It's training the mind. So what did Sir Chris Hoy do when he felt like he was going to die? Uh, He said he he would grip his steering wheel. So he would move his attention to the tactile sensation of holding a steering wheel. He would feel the clips in his feet. And then he was directing his attention to what he had to do right now. And so mindfulness is an excellent tool to train your attention, to train your awareness, to know when your mind is drifting. And then to bring it back on track because the mind is a thought and an emotion producing factory. And it's our job as athletes and coaches to steer our minds to where we want them to be.
1: Amazing. I love the quote, uh, mindfulness. What is it? Uh, Is the currency?
0: Attention is the currency of performance.
1: Attention is the currency of performance. How does one improve their mindfulness?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. there are apps that you can use. Headspace is a great app. Calm is a great app. There are um, you know, free mindfulness tools online. As a matter of fact, I'll try to get you some of those free. There's some free apps that you can use. And really what it is, is you usually start with the breath. Mm. And they teach you a process of focusing on your breath as it moves in and out. And it's way harder than you think to sit there for 10 minutes and to, and to, and to go through this. As a matter of fact, I have a company called AIM-7. And Dr. Haberl teaches all the mindset stuff in the app. And one of the things he does is he's like, hey, I want you to uh, do this test. I'm, I'm going to start a stopwatch. I want you to clear your mind. And I want you to push start on your phone's uh, you know timer and try to keep, keep your brain clear and see how long it takes till a thought pops up and it's like five seconds three <laughs> seconds what, what they teach you in mindfulness is is to like it's almost like you're disconnecting and you're seeing your thoughts as like clouds floating by and it's like yes i feel you ever seen like bill belichick in a game like he seems so dour and just grumpy But if you ever hear him mic'd up during the game, he's doing an incredible amount of thinking. He's just sitting. His arms crossed is how he thinks, and he's just thinking. He's observing. He's not letting his emotions master the moment. And he's letting these things like, okay, this is happening. This scenario is going by. You're noting what's happening. You see your emotions, and you can kind of go, okay, that's anger. That's this. That's that. And you're not reacting to it. So what you are is you're, you're taking control of the moment. You're putting your attention where you want it. Yeah, this thing comes into my head, but I'm going to let that pass on by and I'm going to focus on this. And so um, there are very step-by-step processes you can do that with. And there's some great apps for that. And it really just takes some time and dedication. I know teams that Clemson football team does Monday mindfulness session together. To start the meeting, they do a 10-minute meditation as a team. And it's just them refocusing into the here and now. Okay, all this stuff happened during the day. We're going to take 10 minutes. I know Chris, uh, Tony, Holler, our good friends, they do, um, you know, RPR stuff. And one of the things they do is they do five or 10 deep breaths with a group. Everybody circles up and they're like, all right, let's center in on right here, right now. Yeah, Um, That's mindfulness. You can do mindful eating. Like just... Being aware that you're chewing your food, you're bringing attention to the moment. It's amazing. You can bring mindfulness into a lot of places.
1: Amazing. Yeah, the RPR stuff is super interesting, and that's probably a longer conversation. But Tony introduced that to me this year, and it blew my mind.
0: Yeah, I've used that on myself. Um, It definitely helps me warm up. I mean, My tissues, as I'm getting older, I can definitely feel like different fascial lines open up as soon as I do it.
1: Interesting. Uh, Tell us before we go, tell us um, about AIM-7 and what you're doing now.
0: Yeah, so I left sport in 2020 to start a company called AIM-7. And what we're doing is we're turning wearable technology data, like your Apple Watch or Oura Ring, into healthy habits. And we're helping people with three things, sleep, energy, and stress. And really what I did is the whole app is about building adaptability. And it's a high-performance model for anybody. Uh, it's not sports related. This is for um, mid-career professional, your house, you know, your stay-at-home mom or dad, your coach, whatever. We've helped a lot of people in these three areas. And you're going to learn a lot of the things I just talked about in our app. And it's free. Um, you can go to our website, aim7.com, and you can sign up for free. The other thing I wanted to tell you is um, I have a podcast called The Blueprint. And episode number five is with Peter Haberl and the whole thing is attention is the currency of performance. And if you're, if your listeners want to get a deep dive on that, I would highly recommend that episode as a good launching off point to learn more about mindfulness.
1: Love that. Um, so back to, um, aim seven and your app, um, what, is going to make what you're doing uh, special and why do you feel like you're you're going to be able to help people more so than the other products that are out there?
0: Yeah. um, First of all, a lot of those products, they just show you data like uh, close your rings and you're going to be healthy. Uh, Walk 10,000 steps, which by the way, there's not a shred of scientific evidence to substantiate that claim Uh, or like, Hey, like you need to walk, you know, you need to sleep this much. Well, we actually create the biological conditions for sleep. We actually give you the tools to regulate stress in the moment. And what we're teaching you how to do is we wrap this all up in a behavior design process. So the first week in our program, uh, it's a step-by-step program. You're actually gonna learn how to wire in new habits very fast. And then we give you a custom recommendation and it's very small. So if you have, you know, this is built for people that don't have a lot of time. We'll give you one little thing we want you to do. And then we'll remind you of that daily and we'll give you some more content. And then like, once you get that, then we'll add another little piece and another little piece. I think coaches will find this app fascinating because we teach a process of behavior design. It's something you could replicate for your athletes. If there is anything that you want to wire into a new habit, we teach you the scientific methodology of how to do that very, very fast. And the research comes from the Behavior Design Lab at Stanford, my work with Dr. Haberl, and some other folks. So we teach you to design for behaviors that you want to put in place. And then we give you truly science-backed resources and tools that you can implement very quickly with if you have a very busy life. But you do need a wearable uh, because we can then give you feedback on your progress.
1: Got it. And so you mentioned Aura Ring. You mentioned Apple Watch. You didn't mention Whoop.
0: No. Um, if we eventually may bring in that data, but um, if you're interested in all, oh, you can just sign up on the online and there's going to be a, a little form you fill out. It'll tell us which wearable you wear. And if we start seeing that a, hundreds of whoop people start signing up, we'll go ahead and bring you in. But we're expecting to expand which um, wearables we use, but right now we're starting with the Apple Watch and then we'll be doing the Oura Ring very soon.
1: And the most important thing is to get precise data so that you can then use that data, correct?
0: Yes. And then you have to have the model for how to use it. And that's what we're really good at. We're probably the best in the world at, um, because I went out and hired and got the best group of scientists that have actually turned data into insights and human performance. And so we're bringing that capability to anybody.
1: Amazing. Such an interesting conversation. I love it. Um, I'm so glad that we got introduced by Tony Holler and, um, and Eric, um, High performance is where it's at. And this is the way everybody needs to be thinking. Um, All of the coaches that are listening to this podcast and the parents that listen to this podcast, we have to look at everything from 50,000 feet and not just immediately dive into what we think we need to do.
0: 100%. Be very inquisitive and curious. If you do that, I think you'll end up in the right spot.
1: So interesting. Um, If people want more information on you or they want to reach out to you, how would they reach? How would they get in touch with you?
0: Yeah. So uh, I'm on Instagram at Eric Corum, E-R-I-K-K-O-R-E-M. That's a great place to DM me. I'm on Twitter too. Um, or they can go to aim7.com uh, and there's an email there, but really Instagram's a great place to find me and DM me and get a hold of me.
1: Follow you and learn uh, the, the various things that you're doing. And um, like you said, the best in the world are always um, evolving.
0: No question. Thank you so much for having me on today. This is a pleasure. This is really fun. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak to your group.
1: Love it, Eric. Thank you so much for coming on. We'll be in touch.
2: Right, you know, uh I think it's 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 all relative. So whoever we're recruiting against probably had the same advantages and disadvantages because it's totally basically a zero sum game. But um, you know, pros and cons. I think you know, coming out of this learning, you know, how do we use Zoom? Like this is this is productive here. We'll recruit with Zoom a little bit and yep. uh still recruit with some film, but But by and large, it's a little more back to normal and and having people on campus, having families come in here in the next couple of weeks will be uh, fun as well. So
1: let's go campus tours. Love it. Right. You know, when you're thinking about Feed the Cat stuff, the last thing on recruiting is, man, I really wish a lot of these uh, players um, would 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 really prioritize performance by prioritizing recovery and rest and sleep, because Mm -hmm. this summer, probably more than ever kids were playing so much it was it was actually insane
2: yeah i agree and i you know there was a set of established events before covid and then things blew up and some new events kind of popped up in during covid and now all those events are back the pre-covid events and the covid events and they're all like crowded in the space Mm -hmm. you know and these kids feel like they have to go to all these things I, i feel badly for them you know uh yeah and they, they just don't. And it's like, I mean, you're exactly right. Sleep and burnout and all this stuff. These kids, you know, over training, you know. Uh, so, you know, hopefully they can take a deep breath. I don't know what the solution is structurally, but. Because there's some kids that like
1: literally probably like played, you know, 28 days of 45 days in the summer and they feel like nobody knew who they were. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Which is like the saddest part.
2: Yeah. And that the whole point of it was to get recognized and noticed and recruited. And you do not know if it worked or not.
1: Yeah, yeah. crazy. But, um, you know, like you said, I mean, things generally work out. And if you prioritize over the course of time being the best prospect you could be, being the best student, the best kid, the best athlete, you know, the best across where We talked about, you know, both of our opinion on how you do that, which is a lot of free play. You mm-hmm. know, there's a really good chance that you will be found if you stay, sort of st- stick with it.
2: Yeah, hundred percent. If you can focus on what you control, getting yep. better and loving the game, yep. the rest of the stuff will take care of itself. You know, keep the faith. That's right. That's right. Is that? Thank you, uh,
1: Thank you so much for uh, coming on, man. It was just awesome to talk lacrosse to you again. I'm so fired up for the Quakers to be able to uh, get back in action.
2: Yeah, my pleasure, Jamie. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Certainly enjoyed it. Uh, hopefully, we'll see you uh, somewhere along the way here this fall or sometime in the spring.
1: For sure. Awesome, man. Take care. Sure. Hi, right, Jamie. See ya.